You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. I am a former Los Angeles police narcotics detective, and I work South Central Los Angeles. And I will tell you, Director Deutsch, that the agency has dealt drugs throughout this country for a long time. Director Deutsch, I will refer you to three specific agency operations known as Amadeus, Pegasus, and Watchtower. I have Watchtower documents heavily redacted by the agency. I was personally exposed to CIA operations and recruited by CIA personnel who attempted to recruit me in the late 70s to become involved in protecting agency drug operations in this country. In this country. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you on this 14th day of February, 2010. I'd like to invite listeners to check out our previous podcast episodes, as well as interviews, articles, and videos created and conducted by The Corbett Report in the past at the homepage, corbettreport.com. Also, please check out reportagebook.com for more information about my forthcoming book, Reportage Essays on the New World Order. Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist.com contains information about my ongoing documentary project, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, and ClimateGate.tv continues to be updated with information about the ongoing meltdown of the anthropogenic global warming hypothesis. I'd also like to encourage listeners to check out ZeroPointRadio.com for online streaming radio that hosts this podcast as well as many other quality radio programs and podcasts. CascadiaPublicRadio.org where you can find low bitrate, small file size versions of this podcast. And Archive.org where you can find backup versions of the podcast going back to episode 70 should you ever have any problems downloading podcast episodes from the Corbett Report server. I'd also like to let listeners know that an interview with yours truly conducted by Chris Geo and socio student of Truth Frequency will be appearing on truthfrequency.com on February 18th. And of course, you can listen to their live streams on the internet as well if you're listening at 7 p.m. Central Time this Thursday. So please subscribe to their podcast and stay tuned for all of their great guests. And also people who missed my recent appearance on CHUOFM in Ottawa last week will likely be able to download a copy of that program from the program's homepage, trainradio.blogspot.com. And uh, at the time of this recording, it is not yet up on their website, but I imagine it will be up there shortly. On another note, it's come to that time of year when the Corbett Report domain name and hosting account comes due for renewal, as well as some of the other related websites. And as the Corbett Report online empire continues to grow and expand, and we continue to expand our operations and have greater and greater effect on the societal discourse at large, of course, this does require funds to keep it running. In that regard, I have recently set up a new chip-in fundraiser that you can find at the top right of the Corbett Report homepage at CorbettReport.com, and it is for funds to help fund the domain name renewal and the hosting for CorbettReport.com for another year. So if you do appreciate this podcast and what I'm doing on the website, please consider contributing whatever amount of money you're able to donate as your support is truly needed to make this independent news and information possible. And on that note, let's get to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to Sunday Update, a public service of the Corbett Report podcast for this 14th day of February 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, transport authorities around the world have been caught out on yet another lie regarding the highly unpopular naked scanning technology that is being implemented in the name of heightened airport security. For months now, Security officials defending the use of these machines have claimed that they are incapable of storing or printing out naked images of passengers, with UK Transport Secretary Lord Adonis saying earlier this month, 
Quote, it is very important to stress that the images which are captured by body scanners are immediately deleted after the passenger has gone through the body scanner. And adding, quote, staff are, of course, properly trained and supervised to manage the body scanners. Last year, Kristen Lee, a spokeswoman for the Transportation Security Administration in the U.S., also assured CNN that naked images captured by the scanners would be automatically deleted. This week, however, Indian film star Sharuk Khan seemed to contradict these claims when he told BBC's Jonathan Ross about his own experience with the scanners at London's Heathrow Airport. You walk into the machine and everything, the whole outline of your body comes out, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know this, so I was, I was a little scared because uh, these people came up and they never do this because a lot of Asians at the airport and they're very kind to me. And then suddenly you have to go into the machine, go into the machine. So I went in and you have to keep your hand like this and some stuff happens. And I came out and then I saw these girls, they had these uh, printouts. <laughs> so I looked at them, I thought, you know, maybe it's a form that you're supposed to fill and they give it to me and, and you can see everything inside. And then I've autographed them for them. Oh, well, that's what we did. The devices have been the subject of protests and criticisms around the world for their invasive nature, and security officials have been caught resorting to falsehoods to try to allay the public's fears. Defenders of the technology have tried to claim that the machines do not show intimate details of passengers' bodies, with TSA spokeswoman Lee even claiming that the images resemble fuzzy negatives, and Heritage Foundation talking head James Carafano telling the Washington Post that the scanners cover up the dirty bits. Claims directly contradicted by Melbourne Airport's Office of Transport Security Manager Cheryl Johnson, who said last year, quote, It will show the private parts of people, but what we've decided is that we're not going to blur those out because it severely limits the detection capabilities, end quote. Industry groups have also tried to claim that the devices are not physically harmful, with some claiming that radiation exposure from the machines is negligible. This is contradicted by MIT's Technology Review, however, which reported last October that the terahertz waves that the scanners rely on have the power to actually tear apart DNA. According to Technology Review, quote, resonant effects allow terahertz waves to unzip double-stranded DNA, creating bubbles in the double strand that could significantly interfere with processes such as gene expression and DNA replication, end quote. Earlier this year, it was revealed that Michael Chertov, the former head of Homeland Security in the U.S. and a longtime proponent of the naked scanner technology, is head of a security consulting agency whose clients include manufacturers of the machines. In other news, public anger continues to grow as even mainstream media outlets are beginning to report what the alternative media has been touting for years, namely that the $700 billion TARP program, commonly known as the banker bailout, represents only a small fraction of government funds that have actually went to the financial institutions responsible for the current economic meltdown. The president continues to say in public that banks have almost paid Americans back. That is a lie. The fact is, the TARP, which Congress approved, is only 2% of the trillions of dollars in free money being provided to our banks by the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. The American people know this. They know that they are subsidizing our banking sector. And yet, the TARP lie continues to be spread by our politicians. Public resentment over the trillions of dollars of taxpayer funds that have been spent on these financial institutions is increasingly being treated as a threat by the defenders of this economic status quo. Now, Stephen Schwartzman, co-founder of the Blackstone Group, investment firm that manages some $100 billion of assets, seems to be blaming the public for the bank's reluctance to lend out any of the trillions of dollars that the taxpayers have given them. In an op-ed piece in the Washington Post last Friday, Schwartzman wrote, quote, To single out banks for blame is dangerous to the economy. If, as a result of this anger, credit becomes unavailable, particularly for small and mid-sized businesses, in the amounts needed to fuel economic growth and job creation, then at best the economy will slow and, at worst, we will find ourselves in a dire situation to which we all will have contributed." Schwartzman is not the first billionaire financier who has attempted to shift the blame for the current financial meltdown off of the bankers who created it. Last November, Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein made headlines for claiming that his bank had a social purpose and was in fact doing God's work. In that same interview, Mr. Blankfein admitted that, 
quote, I could slit my wrists and people would cheer, end quote. In a positive development this week, the USDA made a surprise decision to drop its highly controversial National Animal Identification System. The program, which has been under heavy criticism since it was initially proposed, would have made it mandatory for all farmers to electronically tag and track each animal individually under the guise of containing disease outbreaks among livestock. Bill Bullard of the Ranchers Cattlemen Action Legal Fund recently explained the importance of this decision to the Corbett Report. Well, we're very pleased with the latest USDA decision because that decision has essentially abandoned this onerous program and is now focused on moving forward to improve disease traceability. And we believe we now have the opportunity to expand and build upon the pre-existing disease traceback systems that we've been using in the United States for decades uh, to control animal diseases. So we think we have uh, will have imparted a level of reasonableness uh, and prudence in this process, and we're looking forward to working with USDA to improve upon our existing systems uh, to enhance our ability to conduct a disease traceback in the event of a disease outbreak. In 2009, the USDA released a cost analysis of NAIS which showed how small farmers would have paid two to three times more than big agri-companies under the program. This served to underline the allegation by critics of the program that it was written by and for Big Agra to further consolidate control of the U.S. food supply and to introduce Orwellian RFID technology into our everyday lives. Now, stay tuned for episode 117 of The Corbett Report, Requiem for the Suicided, Gary Webb, where we honor the life's work and explore the suspicious death of groundbreaking investigative journalist Gary Webb. Gary Webb was born on August 31, 1955, and from a young age, he showed an inclination to become a journalist. At 15, he had already begun writing editorials for his high school newspaper in suburban Indianapolis. He went on to attend journalism school at Northern Kentucky University, and he was on the staff of the student newspaper The Northerner, but he dropped out of that school and started his professional career at the Kentucky Post, and then later also as a statehouse correspondent for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. It was in 1988 that Webb came to join the San Jose Mercury News as a staff writer, and some of his early reporting focused on exposing freeway retrofitting problems in the area and writing stories about computer software problems. It was with a much more explosive and wide-ranging story, however, that Gary Webb was to leave his mark on the annals of journalism in the mid-1990s. My name is Gary Webb. I am an investigative journalist. I've been an investigative journalist for about 25 years for daily newspapers. And in 1996, I wrote a series of stories entitled Dark Alliance, uh, which was about CIA involvement in drug trafficking. What my story showed was that the cocaine that was being sold in those neighborhoods uh, was coming from mainly one source, and this one source was being used to finance a guerrilla war in, in Central America. The general idea of the CIA dealing drugs um, was something that the American mainstream press had never written about before, and that's why it prompted outrage among blacks, among drug reform activists, among uh, politicians, by the CIA, by every federal agency involved in the drug war, because it showed they weren't doing their jobs, that, that it was a fraud. It's no exaggeration to say that Gary Webb's reporting in the Dark Alliance series was groundbreaking and shook the foundations of a number of American institutions, including, of course, the Central Intelligence Agency and mainstream journalism, which had for years neglected all of the numerous leads in this story that continued to tie back to the CIA bringing drugs into the country. Gary Webb was by no means the only person drawing attention to these facts. 
But the Dark Alliance series, boosted by the groundbreaking website that the San Jose Mercury News, a regional newspaper with a very limited circulation, set up for the series, pushed this information into the mainstream in a way that mainstream journalists could not ignore. But as always, when a story this explosive is pushed into the mainstream spotlight, it is inevitable that the hit pieces will begin. Here is Jane Pauley. A super secret organization like the CIA is going to have secrets, but this sounded too bizarre to be true. Yet there it was, in print, in a respected newspaper. The accusation that the crack epidemic which ravaged this country's cities was spread with help from a secret army linked to the CIA. As you may recall, the story set off a firestorm of controversy. Then last month, a surprising twist. The newspaper which had first published this astounding story started to back away from it. Is the story true or not? Tonight, Bob McEwen takes a second look. We are sick and tired of your excuses. And I hope that you'll help to put an end to it, because we are tired and we're hurt and we're angry. I will tell you, Director Deutsch, as a former Los Angeles police narcotics detective, that the agency has dealt drugs throughout this country for a long time. It was an American first. The director of the CIA, one of the country's most secretive institutions, facing the public at a town meeting in South Central Los Angeles. If this information turns up wrongdoing, if it turns up wrongdoing, we will bring the people to justice and make them accountable. An extraordinary event in response to an extraordinary accusation that people working with the CIA had a hand in sparking the crack epidemic that has devastated America's inner cities. Those charges came from this man, reporter Gary Webb of the San Jose Mercury News, he became one of the most talked about journalists in the country. His story, the most controversial of the past year. Because after investigating the origins of the crack epidemic, he claimed he found a link leading right to the CIA. Men who were working for the CIA's army were responsible for bringing all that cocaine into Los Angeles that sparked the crack epidemic. The CIA's army, Webb says, were the Contras, the anti-communist rebels fighting the government of Nicaragua back in the 1980s an army founded and funded by the CIA. Webb wrote that some Contra supporters smuggled cocaine to America to raise money for their cause. The CIA has been bringing drugs into this country. As then CIA Director John Deutsch discovered, it's an accusation that rings true for many, especially for some in the African-American community. And Webb's story has taken on a life of its own. And Gary, this, this On the talk show circuit and the internet, some have even gone beyond Webb's charges to accuse the CIA of conspiring to target young African Americans. Was the CIA willing to poison our cities and crack with crack cocaine? On the basis of what you learned, do you believe that there was a conscious decision, a, a meeting where someone sat down and said, we're going to poison the youth of black America and here's how we're going to do it? No, no I don't. These guys were looking to raise money, and I don't think it mattered to them where they did it. They just went where they could raise the money. Gary Webb says his stories were largely based on the testimony of a drug dealer with Contra connections who became a U.S. government witness. But nine months after the series was published, the controversy continues. Some of the heavyweights of American journalism have examined Webb's work and found it reckless, often wrong. Just this week, Webb was pulled off the CIA story after his own executive editor admitted the articles oversimplified the origins of the crack epidemic and left out important conflicting evidence. He also wrote, I feel that we did not have proof that top CIA officials knew. But despite the evidence to the contrary, Gary Webb insists his stories were substantially accurate. And many Americans do seem willing to believe that their own government could have been involved in drug smuggling. So was the U.S. government involved in any way? Dateline decided to take a second look. Crack use spread like wildfire in the early 1980s. And in Los Angeles, a drug dealer known as Freeway Ricky Ross was in the middle of it. Prosecutors called Ross the Walmart of crack. 
He made millions in the early 80s dealing to Los Angeles street gangs. Police say he was among the first to take expensive cocaine powder and cook it into low-cost, highly addictive crack, then distribute it through the gangs. Webb says Freeway Ricky helped trigger an epidemic of human misery. It's destroyed our community. All the black men are in prison, most of us. Rick Ross is now serving a life sentence for cocaine distribution. The women are still strung on their drugs. Kids without fathers, without mothers. And honestly, how much responsibility do you have for that? A lot. A lot of it was my fault. I played, I played the game. Police in Los Angeles say he virtually cornered the crack market, thanks to a steady supply of cheap cocaine. A pipeline so good that Ross was able to introduce crack to other cities, using his gang contacts. And to make himself, he says a very rich man. On your best day, how much money did you see? <clears throat> Couple million, two, three maybe. On a day? On a good day. How many days like that were there? A few. Quite a few. Rick Ross's drug supplier did have connections to the Contras. Dateline has been able to confirm that from former Contra leader Eden Pastora. And Pastora admits he received some aid from that drug supplier. But Pastora says he was not aware of any CIA drug connection. So we asked Gary Webb, where is the evidence the CIA knew of any drug dealing? You have to define the CIA. If you're saying that people who are working with the CIA know they were doing it? Yeah. Did the director of the Central Intelligence Agency know this? I don't know. This is nonsense. Now retired, Dewey Claridge was the CIA's man in charge of Central America in the early 80s. He insists the agency had nothing to do with any drug trafficking or with any cover-up. Oh, don't give me the don't give me the conspiracy bull. Come on, you're you're a more intelligent man than that. Come on, come on. I mean, come on. This is this is, there has never been a conspiracy in this country. The attacks and the whitewash are perhaps predictable in this case. But the fact that large corporate-controlled outlets like Dateline even had to cover this story is a testament to the impact that the Dark Alliance series had on mainstream journalism at the time. From the time of the publication of the Dark Alliance series onwards throughout the 1990s, there was a flood of information corroborating the entire story. There is fresh momentum in Washington tonight for more thorough investigation of accusations about the CIA and drugs. Accusations never proved or disproved. At issue, did the CIA during the 1980s look the other way while profits from the sale of crack cocaine in inner cities were funneled to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua? These charges have galvanized African-American leaders and some others who are determined to force official Washington to take another look. David Martin has the latest on this. A protest today by former drug enforcement agent Celerino Castillo outside the headquarters of the DEA. They're trying to hide the truth from the people. The latest chapter in a saga which began during the Reagan administration when a CIA agent stumbled out of the Nicaraguan jungle and admitted he'd been running arms to the Contra rebels. It's an allegation that will not go away. While the Contras and their associates imported and sold tons of cocaine in the United States to help finance their war in Nicaragua, the CIA and DEA knew about it and looked the other way. Cocaine, which ended up as crack on the streets of Los Angeles. Black activists like Dick Gregory say that would be unforgivable. Nothing in the history of this planet is as foul as what we are about to uncover. The allegation has been investigated and reinvestigated by congressional committees and by special prosecutor Lawrence Walsh. Now it's being investigated again. I regard these allegations with the utmost seriousness. They go to the heart, the integrity of the CIA enterprise. There is no new evidence. This former DEA agent who appeared today at an overflow news conference has been making the same charge for the past two years. The CIA and the DEA knew that the Contra pilots 
were involved in narcotics trafficking. But the old evidence has become a cause celebre in the black community. The CIA and others have nullified the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves, and have instituted a new and worse form of slavery through chemical warfare. The CIA's investigation of itself is not likely to change many minds. But both the Justice Department and the House Intelligence Committee have also ordered probes into what has to be one of the most thoroughly investigated episodes in American history. David Martin, CBS News, Washington. One of the most startling corroborations of the Gary Webb Dark Alliance series came from, surprisingly enough, the CIA itself. In 1998, the CIA's Inspector General himself delivered two volumes of information on the subject, detailing explosive corroborating evidence to back up what Gary Webb had been alleging to a large extent, including a description of how the Reagan-Bush administration had protected more than 50 Contras and other drug traffickers, and by so doing, thwarted federal investigations into drug crimes. The National Security Archive at George Washington University even hosts a webpage of source documents detailing the evidence for these charges compiled from declassified documents, including the notebooks kept by National Security Council aide and Iran-Contra figure Oliver North, mail messages written by high-ranking Reagan administration officials, memos from the Contra war effort, and FBI and DEA reports. And I would highly suggest people go to the documentation section for today's episode on CorbettReport.com to take a look at this page, which contains documentation of official U.S. knowledge of d- drug trafficking and the Contras, and evidence that NSC staff supported using drug money to fund the Contras. Indeed, Gary Webb, the lowly reporter from a small regional newspaper, had pulled off a journalistic feat so breathtaking that it could hardly be believed which is perhaps why it largely wasn't. Even after the CIA Inspector General's internal investigation in 1998 that concluded that there was Reagan-Bush administration collusion to aid and abet drug runners as part of their Iran-Contra operations, the mainstream news refused to report on that investigation, and thus it was almost like it never happened. As small of a solace as it would have been merely to have known that he had been right in his original reporting, even if it had not ultimately changed the official mainstream line that the CIA was not involved in drug running, Gary Webb was not even allowed to enjoy that small comfort. In May of 1997, the executive editor of the San Jose Mercury News wrote an open letter to the readers of that newspaper that, if it did not completely retract the Dark Alliance series, at least cut its own legs out from under it. The executive editor said that the series had fallen short in writing, editing, and production, and that it did not meet journalistic standards. The next month, Gary Webb was removed from the Dark Alliance story, and transferred to the Mercury News's very small bureau in Cupertino, a San Jose suburb 140 miles away from where Gary Webb lived. Right after we published the stories, um, the the support we got from the media was very favorable. Um, Newsweek magazine did a big piece on the story and said it was well documented and well researched. The website was getting like a million hits a day. Um, there were marches and, and lots, there were marches in Compton, there were candlelight vigils. Uh, every California senator demanded an official investigation. Um, so the story itself was really building momentum. The government reaction was no reaction. And this, I, I believe, was a, a very careful strategy because nobody was going to believe the government if they came out and said, we didn't do it. Um, the proof was fairly overwhelming since we had all these government documents showing that, that, that it had happened. So what happened was they let the so-called liberal press speak for them. And they had the national security reporters at the Washington Post, who coincidentally used to work for the CIA, uh, write stories saying, it doesn't mean anything. It was a, a distraction from what the story said, and it became sort of a media war 
uh, between the Mercury News, which stood behind the story at that point, and the rest of the establishment media who wanted us to back away from it. And part of that reason was because these major newspapers had written uh, about this issue back in the 1980s, but had written about it very dismissively, as if this is nonsense, it doesn't happen, it never happened. And then 10 years later, we came back with documentation showing that it was absolutely true and that it was worse than we were. We had gotten a story out around them, um, and we had gotten it out in a big way that they couldn't control, and that was through the Internet. And I think a lot of this was directed to the Mercury News to say, we don't care what documentation you have, we don't care what kind of story you've got, we set the national news agenda. And if we don't like your story, we will kill your story regardless of its truth. The media rejoiced when this came out uh, because it meant they had won. Uh, they had forced a newspaper to back away from a story that was true um, simply because um, of this barrage of, of criticism, of mindless criticism essentially, that really took its toll on the editors of the newspaper. And they were, they were being seen as sort of outcasts um, from the club. And um, I think they made a political decision that it was better in the long run to take a dive on this story and uh, get back in the good graces of the rest of the media. After parting ways with the San Jose Mercury News, which had hung him out to dry, Gary Webb began work for the California Assembly Speaker's Office of Member Services, and he began to serve as a consultant to the California State Legislature Task Force on Government Oversight. In that role, he investigated, for instance, charges that Oracle Corporation received a no-bid contract of $95 million in 2001 from the former California Governor Gray Davis. After he was laid off from that job in 2003, when a new House Speaker took over, he took a job as a reporter for the Sacramento News and Review. In 2004, Gary Webb was 49 years old. He was going through a divorce and just about to leave the house where he had been until recently residing with his wife and three children. And on the 10th of December, 2004, his dead body was discovered. Later that weekend, documentary filmmaker Kevin Booth phoned Ricky Ross in prison to break the news. You there? Yeah. Did you hear the news? Uh-uh. Um, uh, Gary Webb supposedly killed himself. No! But, uh, of course, nobody thinks that it was suicide. You lying? No. When? Saturday. Oh, man. Let me just read it. This is the opening of a, just the, the headline says, Reporter of CIA Cocaine Contra Story Kills Himself. Uh, <clears throat> the California reporter whose controversial series linked the Central Intelligence Agency with the Nicaraguan Contras and drug trafficking in Los Angeles killed himself over the weekend. Um, I talked to I talked to both Sele and and Chico about it. They uh, they basically said that it was like a, a shotgun blast right close to his head, and um, you know, but obviously nobody believes that it was suicide. But that's what you know. That's what the official story is supposed to be. Oh, man, I hate to hear that. So, um... Huh. So what do you think? I mean, do you think he would have any reason to want to commit suicide? Yeah. I'm just blown away right now. It's, I mean, not even how it happened, but just, you know, that it happened. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't know him, but, I, yeah, I, you know, I just found out today, so I figured you didn't know. No, I didn't know. Yeah. It's not like mainstream news or anything, you know? Yeah. It's kind of, you know kind of West Coast news. Um, Man, I hate to hear that. Yeah, I guess he had three kids. My yeah. wife, I guess he was going through a divorce or something, but, you know, my, uh, you know, Alex Jones, the, the talk show host who you talked to, uh, uh -huh. he was talking about how, um, how so many of the biographers that have, like, uncovered stuff about the, the Bush family, now they all end up, like, you know, mysteriously committing suicide. Yeah, I, I mean, the last time I talked to Gary, he was 
He was excited and, you know, and happy about life. And he was thriving, you know, and was looking toward the future. Just, man. Seems pretty weird, huh? Yeah, and he was such a good guy, you know? I mean, um... And he did so much, you know, for our case and, and, and whatnot. It's just... I don't know. It's like losing a good friend. Yeah. Um... I mean, uh, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I, I, I find it hard to believe. I mean, the, the chances of like a, a 49 year old man, uh, just suddenly killing himself like that are supposedly like one in a million or one in a billion even or something. It's like some ridiculous odd and, you know, Alex was calculating the odds of it and, uh, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, yeah. And Gary, I mean, he had so much, but you know, he had told me before that people were following him around and tapping his phones and, you know, doing all kind of weird stuff to him. And, and, you know, it was a lot of weird stuff he was saying was happening, you know, people on his telephone poles. And well, tell me about that real quick. What what, did, what, tell me what Gary <laughs> said to you. Well, he used to tell me that, that, that he would come home at night and there'd be guys, you know, climbing up the pole and late at night, 12 and 1 o'clock, and, and, you know, at nighttime and... People following him around everywhere he goes. He has, he has cars telling him, and his phone was tapped. And you know, he said a lot of things were going on. They, they had moved him out from, uh, you know, Mercury News had moved him from where he was working in Sacramento right. to yeah. wait some far out country town. And he was just saying that they they were they were kind of like giving him the blues. You know, a lot of things were going on that that that, that he didn't really like. And he said it was the government too. Wow. I mean, but I guess, like, the question would be, though, that if if he'd already, like, done all this all this reporting, you know, what what was the use in, in getting rid of him at this point? You know, unless there was still something that he was still going to do, or, or maybe this was, like, a revenge thing. Well, you know, Gary was never satisfied with, 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 with the way everything had turned out, you know, and... and from my understanding, that he wasn't through working on the case. He was still digging and, and, and searching, trying to find the documents that would put everything together. Now, I know that for a fact, that he, 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 had, he hadn't stopped working on the case. He was still investigating. What do you think? <coughs> where do you think it may have led if he would have kept going? Who knows? I mean, it, 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 you know, with so much stuff and, and so many people being implicated that, you know, we don't know where it would have ended. Only, only God knows. <clears throat> Was Gary Webb suicided to kill new book? December 27th, 2004. Quote, Before all articles, legitimate questions, and informed speculation critical of Webb's alleged confirmed suicide are automatically tossed in the memory hole or are destined to endlessly travel through the conspiracy belt, I have some new and important revelations that need to be factored into the Gary Webb death equation, including information that he was working on a new book that he would soon finish. And what would people think about Gary Webb's official airtight confirmed suicide pronouncement if they were to read an email containing a recollected conversation between John Rowland and Gary Webb about this very subject? the possibility of Webb's being suicided, where Webb confirms that if he's found dead, it would never be a suicide. In case you're wondering who John Rowland is, he's a constitutional reporter. He's also the founder and webmaster of constitution.org. I called John to clarify the details around the revealing email he had sent out to various listserv groups shortly after Webb's death. When I spoke with Mr. Rowland, I asked him approximately when he had this conversation with Webb. John said, after the Mercury articles were written, and Gary had been living in Sacramento three or four months. John also reiterated that Gary had a cache of evidence left over from his writings that had never been published, which made him concerned for Gary's life. End quote. Now, in that article by Charlene Fassa, reprinted on Rents.com, you can also read the actual email that John Rowland sent around to the listserv group, groups just two days after Gary Webb's apparent suicide. Quote, 
I spoke to Gary, and in the conversation, he indicated he had a lot of evidence that did not appear in his writings. I cautioned him that the CIA might contrive to suicide him, and he indicated that if he died, it would not be suicide. End quote. Indeed, the coroner was extremely quick to rule Gary Webb's double gunshot wound to the head a suicide, but obviously the facts did not add up. The highly suspicious nature of the Gary Webb suicide was looked into at great length on PrisonPlanet.com in the days and weeks following the apparent suicide, and perhaps the single greatest source for the information questioning what happened that day comes from an article that was published on PrisonPlanet.com on December 15th, 2004. Evidence begins to indicate Gary Webb was murdered. Quote, Credible sources who were close to Gary Webb have stated that he was receiving death threats, being regularly followed, and that he was concerned about strange individuals who were seen on multiple occasions breaking into and leaving his house before his apparent suicide on Friday morning. Ricky Ross, one of Gary Webb's primary sources, had spoken to Gary in the days before his death. Gary told Ricky that he had seen men scaling down the pipes outside his home and that they were obviously not burglars, but government people. Gary also told Ricky that he had been receiving death threats and was being regularly followed. It was also mentioned that Gary was working on a news story concerning the CIA and drug trafficking. Original Associated Press reports stated that Webb had died of gunshot wounds, plural, to the face. This was later changed to a single gunshot wound when people began to question how or why a man would shoot himself in the face twice. This represents a concentrated effort to cover up the nature of Webb's death. There have also been reports that the coroner on the scene had originally reported multiple gunshot wounds, but later changed his story. Newspapers also reported the fact that Webb's body was found by removal men without questioning why a man who was about to commit suicide would plan a house move. The Miami Herald and LA Times continue to attack Webb even after his death in their obituaries published yesterday. Both claimed that his work was discredited despite the fact that Webb was vindicated by congressional investigations. End quote. And just for those who really do need an explanation of why a double gunshot wound to the head as a suicide is not at all likely, you can turn to an article from December 18th, 2004 from PrisonPlanet.com, only in Arkansas, Web Double Gunshot Wounds Explanation Defies Belief. Quote, We have uncovered an article from a case in Grand Rapids in 2001 where a woman was found dead in her bedroom. Her husband told the police he had discovered her dead body and that she had committed suicide. David Deist called 911 and later told detectives he was in another room when his wife shot herself, sheriff's officials said. He also told them he removed the gun from her hand. Deputies found it lying on the bed. For five months, the suicide explanation was largely accepted until the coroner came across an overlooked fact. The woman, Sandra Ann Deist, had two gunshot wounds in her head. Kent County Detective Sergeant Chet Bush made the following comment. I had a lot of problems with someone shooting themselves in the head twice. We were suspicious at that point. We wanted more evidence, and it takes time to do that. After blood splash and DNA tests, the verdict was changed to homicide. Her husband had taken out a $50,000 life insurance policy on her and was having an affair. He had killed her. Here we have detectives and coroners stating the obvious. Someone with two gunshot wounds to the head could not have committed suicide. The sheer brazen gall of the Sacramento County Coroner's Office to state, it's unusual in a suicide case to have two shots, but it has been done in the past, and it is in fact a distinct possibility, is disgusting. Yes, it's been done on the past on many occasions, all of which happen to have taken place in Arkansas. The many deaths of prominent political figures linked to Bill Clinton's scandals in the 90s and how their obvious murders were always ruled as accident or suicide became known as Arkansas because Clinton's favorite coroner, Fami Malak, helped him cover up every case. 
Moloch once ruled that a decapitated man had died of carbon monoxide poisoning. End quote. We have an investigative reporter who had independently unearthed some of the most damaging information to come out about the CIA in the last 20 years, who had more information about the CIA and its activities that he had not yet published but was planning to in the near future. He had seen people that he had described as government people breaking into and leaving his home. He had received death threats. He had told people that he would not commit suicide. And then, we are asked to believe, he shot himself in the head twice shortly before moving men came to take his possessions out of his home. The preponderance of evidence indicates that Gary Webb did not commit suicide. Gary Webb was suicided. Without a doubt, the greatest tragedy that occurred on the 10th of December 2004 was that the voice of one of the greatest investigative journalists in our generation was silenced. But perhaps another tragedy is that Gary Webb did not live to see the vindication of his work and the acknowledgement that the corporate media had so long refused to give him that his work was sound and that he had done groundbreaking journalism. That did come from the LA Times, the very same periodical that had committed so much of its time and resources to slamming him and his Dark Alliance series when it originally appeared, and even after his death, when it published an obituary that falsely claimed that Gary Webb's work had been discredited. In 2006, the LA Times published an article titled The Truth in Dark Alliance. Quote, Ten years ago today, one of the most controversial news articles of the 1990s quietly appeared on the front page of the San Jose Mercury News. Titled Dark Alliance, the headline ran beneath the provocative image of a man smoking crack, superimposed on the official seal of the CIA. The three-part series by reporter Gary Webb linked the CIA and Nicaragua's contras to the crack cocaine epidemic that ripped through South Los Angeles in the 1980s. Most of the nation's elite newspapers at first ignored the story. A public uproar, especially among urban African Americans, forced them to respond. What followed was one of the most bizarre, unseemly, and ultimately tragic scandals in the annals of American journalism, one in which top news organizations closed ranks to debunk claims Webb never made, ridicule assertions that turned out to be true, and ignore corroborating evidence when it came to light. The whole shameful cycle was repeated when Webb committed suicide in December 2004. Many reporters besides Webb had sought to uncover the rumored connection between the CIA's anti-communism efforts in Central America and drug trafficking. Dark Alliance documented the first solid link between the agency and drug deals inside the U.S. by profiling the relationship between two Nicaraguan Contra sympathizers and narcotics suppliers, Danilo Blandon and Norwin Manises, and L.A.'s biggest crack dealer, Freeway Ricky Ross. Two years before Webb's series, the Los Angeles Times estimated that at its peak, Ross's coast-to-coast -coast conglomerate was selling half a million crack rocks per day. If there was one outlaw capitalist most responsible for flooding Los Angeles streets with mass-marketed cocaine, the article stated, his name was Freeway Rick. But after Webb's reporting tied Ross to the Nicaraguans and showed that they had CIA connections, the Times downgraded Ross's role to that of one dominant figure among many. It dedicated 17 reporters and 20,000 words to a three-day rebuttal to Dark Alliance that also included a lengthy musing on whether African Americans disproportionately believe in conspiracy theories. End quote. Now that's just a portion of that incredible retraction in the Los Angeles Times, and I would suggest people follow the link from the documentation to read that in its entirety. But if that article from 2006 shows us anything, it shows us that in the end, those that caused the death of Gary Webb did not win, and his voice was not silenced. In the end, the truth will out, and the work of people like Gary Webb, who sacrifice their lives to bring us the information through which we can connect the dots 
and understand the world around us to an ever greater extent will not go in vain. As long as we are able to maintain and perpetuate the knowledge that came to light through the tireless investigation of Gary Webb, his work is not in vain, and it continues to live on. And that is the greatest testament to any life. I leave you today with the words of Gary Webb on the role of investigative reporting in our society. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 118 of the Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Whistleblowing. Investigative reporting is being sort of squeezed out of the picture, uh, and I think intentionally, because it tends to ruffle feathers. I mean, it's, it, good investigative reporting does ruffle feathers, and it draws lawsuits, and it gets newspapers in trouble.